So yesterday I come in the house, feet are slightly wet, and I slip, I slip, I slip. It's two steps down. I slip, and I landed perfectly, which is to say I landed horribly. I mean, there are a few things that make me question whether I'm a follower of Jesus Christ than when I stub my toe or when I hurt my feet. Because the images and words and thoughts and ideas that come out of my brain, I'm just like, stop, don't say those things. Few things demand an uncontrolled wreck. When you hit right, right there, you're just like, ah. Or this little toe, like on this side, not the little, little one, but the little one next to the little one, it's like bent permanently at this like, like, like right-hand angle. And it's just like, I hate that. A cautionary tale. What do you do when you read something? What kind of things do you read? Maybe you are more of the, hey, reading kind of hurts my brain, so I don't read that much. Maybe you're the kind that would correct that sentence and say, reading hurts my brain and I infrequently read. Never mind. Grammar, humor. Can we learn from what we read? And if reading isn't your game, I would still imagine you're probably pretty good at reading a given situation, right? Like another car rolling around the roundabout, driver's head buried in their cell phone. You might read the situation and decide to give a horn blast or just give the right away. It just, it's just so much. Do we read the right things? And do we read the things that we read in the right way? Do we read correctly? Today's is a cautionary tale embedded in the overarching narrative of the book of Esther. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Okay, Hamadatha, just think of it kind of like a, a German composer, okay? Who did that? Was it Amadeus or Hamadatha? This is Hamadatha. And advanced him and set his throne among all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether, or not, whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Haman the Agagite. Now again, to refresh our memory, 1 Samuel 15, okay, we have this face-off, right? Okay, back in history, we have this face-off between King Saul, okay, the first king of the nation of Israel, and King Agag, king of the Amalekites, okay? one of Haman's forebears. Saul was supposed to take Agag and take him out, destroy him. But he liked him, he liked his money, he liked all the possessions, and so he didn't do it. Samuel, prophet of Israel, shows up on the scene, says, why is this guy still alive? Samuel, Saul's like, well, it's not really that big of a deal. Samuel's like, no, it's a really big deal. And Samuel takes a sword and makes Julianne fries out of the king of the Amalekites. He goes Sweeney Todd on the bit. I mean, just instantaneous. So, naturally, when you put Haman and Mordecai, who is a Benjamite, 
the same tribe as Saul, in the same space, there's instant fireworks. Thomasino is also careful to point out that Haman, okay, the name sounds in Hebrew like the name for tumult, for confusion. And this animosity even goes back further than Saul's days, right? Exodus 17, Amalekites, okay? This is the one where Moses has to put his hands up in the air, okay? Put your hands up in the air. Only if you have deodorant on. I have deodorant on. It's the only time of the week I wear it on Sundays, okay? Every other day of the week, I don't. So at any rate, so put your hands in the air. As long as the hands are in the air, okay, the nation of Israel prevails, okay? The second that he drops his hands, the Amalekites prevail, okay? And so what happens is that Joshua and one other dude hold Moses' hands up in the air. Okay, so this is the history. They have always been at war, these two ethnic powerhouses. And now, again, we got bad blood, And we have this act, seemingly, of civil disobedience. Of Haman being in this place where the king says, no, you bow to him. Okay, now this is five years since the end of chapter 2. So some time has passed. And Haman has occupied this place, this very, very important place. And Mordecai's like, yeah, I'm not going to bow down to you. And so we have this act of civil disobedience. And Haman, when he finds out about it, is super jammed up. I mean, just absolutely bent out of shape. What? And Mordecai's like, I'm not going to bow down to you. You're not that special. And Haman's like, I'm not special. I'll show you how special I am. Haman is just absolutely furious and embarks upon this pathway that is just mind-blowing. A number of years ago, living in New Prague, some of you know this story, and uh, uh, in our garage, um, I noticed a little bit of a commotion, and uh, the doors were open, and this little tiny hummingbird had got stuck in the garage, okay? And it was, it, was, it was bouncing up against the window, okay? The side view windows in the garage because it wanted to get out. And it could see outside, but it couldn't get outside. And it kept on bouncing into the windows. And finally, finally, it just rested on the shelf, okay? Just this tiny, fragile little thing, right? And I could see it was exhausted. And so I walked up to it. And I, I literally, hummingbird whisper, thank you. <laughs> I, grabbed it, I grabbed it my hands like this. And it kind of fluttered a little bit, but it was kind of dark in there. And so it like chilled out super quick. And it was amazing to me because it was so fragile. A couple times I, I even went like this as I was walking. I'm like, is it still in there? Because it's like so light. It's so fragile, so delicate. And I think about fragile things, right? Crystal and china and, and even emeralds are fragile, right? A snowflake is fragile. Teenage relationships, they're fragile. Nylons, they're fragile. Souffle, popovers, macarons, angel food cake. An uncooked egg is fragile. An uncooked hummingbird egg is incredibly fragile. But is there anything as fragile as the male ego? Seriously, anything? Can you think of anything that's as fragile as the male ego? We we have two guys, right? 
And, and the instant response some people have is like, oh, I don't have an ego. I'm humble. Okay, if you think of yourself as humble, you have an ego. <laughs> the other response, and I love this one, is my ego's not fragile. <laughs> sure, sure, right. Yeah, okay, yeah. Sell that to someone else. This is an intriguing twist for me, right? Okay, um, because Haman's response, what, who, what do you care? You're the number two person in the kingdom. What, what, what do you care about some Yahoo at the city gate thinks or says or doesn't do for you? And then Mordecai, right? Mordecai. When Esther's interests are on the line, Mordecai is like, keep your head down, stay alive, stay in the game, don't take any chances. But when Mordecai's interests are on the line, I'm not going to bow. I hate that guy. There's a long history of my people hating his people. I'm not going to bow down. And you can't miss in the story. And I'm not saying Mordecai's a bad guy. He's a good guy. I am saying Haman's a bad guy. He's a really bad guy. But you can't miss in the story. What role does our ego play in the decisions that we make? Haman, I want him dead. It's a, like, a, like a Robert De Niro playing Al Capone moment. I want him dead. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burned to the ground. Verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Not just Mordecai. Not just him. I mean, earlier in the story, right, we saw this disproportionate sense of justice. That's not even the right word to use. This disproportionate sense of retribution. Vashti does something that upsets the king, and, and this decree goes out in which basically all of the women in the kingdom are to some degree punished, right? And here we have one guy whose ego gets so out of whack. He, he can't just ignore the slight. He, he can't even have an unjustified small retribution. No, he's got to go for everything. So he's going to right a wrong, which really isn't a wrong, with a wrong, which will ultimately be made right. But along the lines of what role does our ego play in the decisions that we make, what do we do with our anger? I would argue I've been more than honest with you that I wrestle with this thing and have wrestled with this thing long, long, long. And I'm at a better spot than I was even five years ago. But what do we do with anger? Verse 7, the pogrom. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, 
before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws, they're different. They're different from those of every other people. They don't keep the king's laws so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Dadar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Five years Esther has been queen. There is so much about this that is wrong. You can't even quantify it, right? This event, the pogroms of the 1800s and Russians against Jews, and other events in history, not necessarily against those of a Semitic origin, Trail of Tears. If you can find out, check out the song White Lies by Peg Top. Super obscure. Super obscure. Places like the Colfax Massacre, places like the Rosewood Massacre, places like Tulsa in 1921, the Holocaust by the Nazis, Pol Pot in the late 70s in Cambodia, Myanmar today. All rooted in this hatred. The timeline should have caused Haman pause. They would cast lots at the beginning of the year, the text tells us. They would cast lots for a day and then for a month. The day, which we'll find out in just a little bit, is the number, the 13th day, 
which even in Persian culture at this time is an unlucky number. More significant, it is two days before the Jews would celebrate Passover that year. But they cast lots. The fates have decided. So it goes before the king. What is Haman to do except enact the will of the gods? He tells a tale, kind of true, kind of not true. They're kind of a weird people. They have customs that are unbecoming of our nation. We need to make a business decision. It's not personal. It's not personal. The king sounds true to me. Oh, you're going to give me money? Lots of it? Go for it. And then there's this phrase, right? The money and the people. We don't know exactly what the king means. Does he mean that um, Haman doesn't have to put the money in? Or does he mean the physical resources will be there to do this project, this pogrom? I take it along those lines. Don't worry about the money. You don't need to pay for taking care of the king. But the second half is deadly, right? Interestingly enough, Persian law would have dictated that you don't execute a single person with only one witness. And here we have this notion of destroying, of killing, of annihilating, literally a final solution. It's death, it's evil, it's what a despot does when he gets angry. And we might ask the obvious questions, how did Haman view Mordecai and the Jews and and likewise, pushing you just a little bit, because I don't think that there's anyone here that is capable of doing or thinking like Haman did and thought. But how do we view those that are around us? How do we view those who are different than us? How do we view those with whom we disagree? And maybe we wouldn't use the word hatred. Maybe intense dislike. Maybe a desire to keep them away. But do we realize those negative feelings, emotions, and thoughts that we are having for another human being, our negative thoughts, feelings, emotions, are for a person who is created like we are created in the image of God. How do I view you? How do you view me? The text concludes, a toast to death. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. Happy hour, right? Sick. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Haman, King Ahasuerus, King Headache, that's done, happy hour. And everyone's just asking, what just happened? Because <laughs> I think we just um, ordered a bunch of people killed. I recently read a book entitled The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Lyerson. I don't know if you've encountered it. It basically tracks the first year of Churchill's run as prime minister in World War II. 
It's wildly engaging, okay? And I like history, right? I love to read. It's what I read. It's what I enjoy reading. It's obviously this desperate struggle against Nazism. Churchill is an absolute riot, okay? An absolute riot, okay? One particular story at the end of the book. Okay, I'll read it for you. Um, Let me see, where is it here? Churchill stayed at the White House, as did Secretary Martin and several others, and got a close-up look at Roosevelt's old secret circle. Roosevelt, in turn, got a close-up at Churchill. The first night Churchill and members of his party spent in the White House, Inspector Thompson, so that was like Churchill's bodyguard the whole time. Churchill never went anywhere without his bodyguard, okay? Inspector Thompson, one of the house scouts, was with Churchill in his room in the White House, okay, scouting various points of danger. Knock at the door. Churchill, Thompson, open it. There is the president of the United States of America, FDR, in his wheelchair, alone in the hall. Door opens wide, odd expression on the president's face as he kind of rolls into the room. Thompson writes in his diary, I turned. Churchill was stark naked, a drink in one hand and a cigar in the other. Can't you just see that? The president is like, like retreating as quick as he can, right? And, and Churchill's like, come on in, Franklin, we're quite alone. <laughs> and then he says, check this out. You see, Mr. President, I have nothing to hide. <laughs> love that line, love that story. The, the title of the book, The Splendid and the Vile, comes from John Colville's diary. He was the secretary, if you will, to Churchill. Never was there such a contrast of natural splendor and human vileness when writing about the bombing that the Nazis did against Britain. The book also references the diaries of Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels. I still didn't pronounce that right, and that's not a name that I get wrong. But it was the first time I had read Goebbels' diaries And you saw this bloodthirsty reality of hate and how in the midst of the hate, he thought he was so right. He he thought he was doing the right thing. And this has been a repeated experience throughout human history. This right to hate someone who looks different than us. I listen to history. I read history in the attempt to not repeat it. I pay attention to my own history Because while there are a lot of good things in my background, there are some things I wish didn't exist. And I don't want to visit those on anyone else. And I wonder, what would happen if our ego didn't get in the way of our faith? It's hard though, right? Someone steps on your toes. 
That's a pain you can barely handle. Someone stubs your toe, man, you want to come out with every word possible. What if our ego didn't get in the way of faith? Please pray with me. Where are you at with God? Where am I at with God? God is moving in the book of Esther in spite in spite of the human characters. And they are characters. Is anger your deal? Is ego your deal? Father, we come to you today challenged by the rawness of this proposed genocide. And to be sure, Father, I am accusing no one in this space of being a character like Haman. Absolutely not. But I am challenging every one of us, O oh great God. May we be honest before you. May your spirit convict in our lives in a way that no one else can convict our lives. That our behavior, when wrong, needs to be called out and needs to be confessed. And so we come before you, O great God, to be honest and forthcoming with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.